I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12 one more time. I tried to finish very quickly last week as running out of time, and I briefed what I'm going to say today. But what I want to say today is important enough to take more time to say it right. Our title is God's Plan for Being Where He Set You. And obviously, God puts His people somewhere. A body of believers is a precious thing to belong to. In a local assembly where you can come and meet, get to know people, fellowship with people of like precious faith, and share your testimony and your life and ideas and get prayer help and encouragement like that. It's a good thing to be in a body. There's lots of people that I know who, for lots of reasons, sometimes they can't help it. They're just not there. I know they would love to be in a body of believers, but I'm glad that I'm here. I'm speaking for myself because I know a lot of people have come to Shelbyville Christian Assembly who really did not belong here. It's not that it was wrong to come. They thought this was where the Lord would set them. And having been here for a while, they realized that it wasn't a good fit. Or their chemistry, as they say, in the world wasn't wrong. There was something just that just didn't feel I was in a church like that before I came here. Good people, a nice place. There wasn't anything wrong with the surroundings. It's just that I didn't fit there. I wasn't set there. I escaped there. That was my Jonah experience. And so I came back to Shelbyville to get started. And this is where I fit. This is where God set me. This is where I belong as a member of a body. And this is where I like to be. You are my family. You are my friends more than anybody else. You are my closest friends. This is where God put me. Now, God put us all here for a reason or a purpose. In bringing me to Shelbyville, there was a divine design, something that God had for me specifically here. I pray all of you can say, whether you have realized it yet or not, that God has put me here for a reason. There's not a mistake for me being in this room today. I don't just visit this church occasionally to see how things are going. I'm not a continual visitor, but a member, a part of a group of believers. I belong here. I must make a commitment to being here for the reason that God sent me here. I belong. Now, I can visit too. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm glad for anybody that finds some kind of a solace and peace and, and fulfillment here. I am. But if you belong, it's because God set you here. One of the reasons he set you here is because you have a need. There is a way your need will be met here more than any other way. You can watch a live streaming. You can read a book. You can listen to a radio program. You can get something out of all of that, but there is a need that can be met in a body that will not be met any other way. There are several needs that we have. We've mentioned three of them and almost finished, so I'm going to finish today. The first need we all have is to be taught by the hearing of the Word. We all need to be taught, or as I said, to learn by hearing. I'm here to listen. I come here because I need to listen to what is said, not because the information is spectacular, not because the preacher is eloquent. When Paul said, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, thing that people admire and, whoa, what a speaker. Paul said, I'm not like that. But my words were in demonstration of the power of God. That is, God takes words, even from such a low-class vessel, Paul said, as I am, and he makes those words affect people. And any time God affects something, his power is released on something. It is that way that God does things. And so he said, all I do is preach the Word. I labor in the Word. I give my time and attention to the Word, to reading and exhortation and so forth. And I preach the Word. And while it's not such a skillfully sent Word, it's a Word that God uses to affect the people that He set where I preach. 
And that's the way it's got to be. It really does. We cannot admire human beings and praise people and, and quit God when one of them's gone. We have to know that God brings us to place to hear his word and that whenever it's spoken, God will say something to me, that I will learn something. I'm not here for a man. I'm here because of the will of God. It has to be like that. Your level of maturity has to bring you to that, that uh, I'm not a man follower. I'm not a man pleaser. I want to hear what the Lord has to say. So we're here to learn by hearing. second thing is that we're here to undergo a change. God sent us here to change us. He will never leave us alone where he sets us. And that change is called conformity. Christ is presented to us in the Scripture as what God wants in a man. This is the kind of person we should all aspire to be like. We are singing the song, To Be Like Jesus. Most people really don't think they can be, but he is seen in the Scripture as we behold in a mirror this glory of the Lord. That's what God is changing us into. This is what he wants. When we examine ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, am I like that? Do I heed what he said? Do I walk the way he walked? Is He's an example for me to walk in his steps. Do I do that? Am I willing to pay the price that Jesus paid? He said, I came to do my Father's will. And he tells us, your life is not yours. It belongs to God. And he expects you to willingly, not by force, but by consent, to willingly turn your life over to him and your will. Whatever you have, your time, your money, your efforts, your talents, whatever you have, it all belongs to him. And he wants you to begin to lay down everything that's not right, to put on things that are right, and to just simply change. As Galatians 4.19, Paul says, until Christ be formed in you literally formed in you. The word for formed is a word which means to mold or to shape. The work that God is doing, among several other things, I mean, there are two or three verses that tell you what God is doing, or four or five or ten. But one of the things that God is doing is working in you a recreation of Christ. That's what a seed does. You put a seed in the ground. You plant a grain of corn or wheat or any other kind of seed or agricultural thing, you put a grain of corn into the ground. When all the proper events take place for that corn to begin to grow, it comes out of the ground. It produces many, 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 maybe two ears on every stalk, hundreds of little grains that are reproductions of the original. And that's what we're supposed to be, a reproduction of the original. The change that takes place is massive. We are so unlike him, and yet he offers us a chance to be like him, beholding as in a mirror and so forth. It's that work of the Spirit to begin to refine and cleanse, and as we'll see today a little bit in a minute, purging us, turning our lives around, and, and the cost we have to pay, and the challenge it is, and the struggle we go through, and the difficulty of coping, and oh God, and we go through it all the time. We labor to do this. We labor to enter into his rest. And we strive to enter through that narrow gate because everything that we've learned in this world is against God. And by your willingness to yield to God, this kenosis or emptying of yourself takes place. God begins to replace it with himself. Like Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live yet. Not I, but Christ lives within me. That God is truly at work in you and all of that. So this change has to take place. And then last week, we talked about a third reason that God set us here. There are probably many more, but these three are the ones I came up with. is for preparation for the Lord's coming. We looked in Luke chapter 1. In verse 17, about John the Baptist, and it was said of him that he is to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord, or a people prepared for the Lord. And in Luke 1, at the end of the chapter, verses 76 through 79, this will come about 
by knowledge. God will have a teaching ministry. Information will be given, as was point one, by the hearing of the Word. God will make that Word stick. You will begin to have your eyes open to see what you need to see and the way you need to see it. And then God will begin to work in your heart a willingness to accept that. This is the work of God. And this knowledge, as it begins to change us, the Bible said it will bring light. Now, we've been talking about light and darkness a lot here in the last month, but light will begin to come forth from us and shine forth from us. And the world will begin to take note that you're not the same person they used to know. You look the same, you sound the same, but your life is different now. The way you live is different. The choices you're making, the line you have drawn is different. The old person was kind of crazy. You've gotten sane, and your life has begun to change. And we ended by saying this last week. The key to all of this is faith. For unless you believe what God says, nothing will ever change in your life. It is necessary, absolutely required that you believe what God says in order for God to do what he said he would do. Anybody can hear, anybody can acknowledge, anybody can quote, anybody can make good confessions, anybody can say amen, anybody. Anybody can raise their hands. You can train a movie star or an actor to preach a sermon and probably do pretty good at it. It's like saying anybody could do all of that. But you can't believe for another person. Believing is a matter of the heart which is inspired by God with the idea of doing what he wants you to do. To live by faith is to live on God's terms. To walk by faith is to walk by a way that glorifies God and refines your life. It's all about faith. You can't even please God without it. And so we mentioned that in closing last week. I said this, and finally... There were two things. This preparation that we're talking about is twofold. And the twofold preparation we'll get to in just a moment. But I want you to turn to Ephesians 2 in preparation for that or in anticipation of that. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. I'm sure you've heard of these verses. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his favor or his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now notice, in the ages to come. Now there's a legacy here. Ages to come doesn't mean you'll be there. But in the ages to come, what he has done with others, this great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, what he has done to ordinary people to make them the kind of people that we, wow, admire scripturally. Notice he said, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Grace is favor. When God specifically singles you out to deal with your life, you are a recipient of grace. God's goodness is God's grace. Grace is applied to your life to affect your life by what we call mercy. It's God doing what he has given you his desire to do. He does it. It's all about God. And in verse 8 he says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. That's a gift from God. Not of works. You didn't do anything to please God. You didn't do anything to get saved. You couldn't build enough, go enough, attend enough, sing enough, dance enough, lift your hands enough, and pray long enough to get saved. You could do nothing to get yourself saved. You're never good enough to get saved. It's all by grace. God took a nobody, a no good, like me and you, did what grace does, Oh, God, I'm so sorry. The goodness of God brings repentance and so forth. And then he inspires and gives you a gift of repentance. That's a gift. That's another grace thing. Repentance, I'm so sorry. He gives you that. You acknowledge your sins, which you must do. You ask God to forgive you, which you must do. And as you repent, he forgives you. 
and he puts into your heart something it's called faith faith is believing in what you can't prove and I can't see him I just know you're one of those few that people think are crazy because you know something they can't know and you know it in such a way that you give your will to it and you know it in such a way that you give your heart and soul to it you can't explain it you don't know how to prove it because you can't. You just know that there is something unique and different going on inside of me that is beyond me. But I know it's real. I can't explain it to you. I can't even convince you that it's real. I just know it's real. And that's what happens when a man gets saved. When God does that work and he visits you, that's grace. And that grace comes and oh, does all of what I just said. And you turn to somebody you've never seen, you've never known, never heard, just somebody that's God, the invisible God. And life takes on a whole brand new twist because you're a new person. And then notice what he said in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now let me ask you a question. As you look at that verse to try to get all we can out of it, what are we created for? I mean, it's this forming of Christ inside of you. This bringing forth is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. What is the purpose of all of that? Obviously, God is not trying to populate heaven or just get us to heaven. Otherwise, he would have saved us and took us to heaven. We'd just gone right to heaven. Even Jesus in John 17, he said, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but you would leave them in the world because this is where God is going to do with us what he said he would do. We are what God is doing. Did you know that? You are what God is doing. Somebody said, what's the Lord doing? Me? That sounds arrogant, so don't say that. What is the Lord doing? Well, a lot. He's changing me, so on and so forth. But this forming on the inside of you, the Bible says we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto. Does your Bible say unto? Unto. Would unto mean for this purpose or to this goal or to this end? All of this over here, all this refining and stuff, all this is taking place. This is God working in us. Unto what? Does your Bible say good works? You mean to tell me then that all this that's going on in our lives is constant, continuous. It doesn't start one day and end one day. It's a constant thing that God is continually dealing with your life. And He keeps dealing with you so that what may come forth? Good works. That's what he said. Now, you're already saved. You've already been born again. The new birth has taken place. And he continued, does this refining work so that you will be doing good works. Good works. Unto good works. Well, you know, there's a great controversy about good works. People think you're saved by... Well, you're not saved by good works, but you're created unto good works. But there is a reason that God wants us to have fruit or the product of effort, product of your will, the product of what you're doing. It should bear fruit. You would agree with that. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 8, He said, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. What if we take our Ephesians 2.10 and said this, what God is doing in you is going to produce through you things, lifestyle, a witness to the world that will glorify God, that your life is for that purpose. Are you with me? You are here for the purpose 
of letting God do what he does in you so that you can glorify God in your body, in your existence. That you are destined to glorify God. If you don't do that, then you read John 15. It's like a tree that's got all these branches, but none of it reflects the root. It's just branches that are trying to build things and make a name for themselves, and all they do is wither and die. And Jesus said, you break those kind off and you throw them into the fire, for they are no good to me. God does not seek for the continuation of our talents and our exceptional abilities. He seeks us to go to the cross and die so that through this process, He can bring forth Himself. So like Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's what God wants. This is what we call the deeper life that the Spirit of God leads us into if we walk with Him. It is a life where you continually throw off the old ways, robe yourself with the new ways, and let the influence of the new way present itself through you. And you don't resist it. You don't hold it back. You speak the word. You live the life. You take your persecution and you go through whatever you have to go through because you've committed yourself to the Lord. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light so shine... There's a connection between the outshining of God's work and life in you and fruit. He said, let your light so shine before the world that others, others will see your what? Your good works. And what will they do? And they will glorify God. In other words, there's something about the real deal. That when people see a person like that, I mean, a heathen doesn't see you and go, praise God. They don't know God like that. But they see you and they take note in their wretched hearts that you are the way a man ought to be or a woman ought to be. That you live a kind of life that a person, even a heathen, secretly admires. He may fuss at you and criticize you, but inwardly, like Peter said, he cannot deny that you're right. And even in his life, he will say, you know, you can say what you want to about those folks, but they are good people. You think God would be glorified if somebody said that such a transformation has taken place in you that you're now considered good by them? Of course. What does the psalmist say? He picked me up out of the miry clay. Remember that one? And he set my feet upon a rock. This is that work. Out of the miry clay. Ugh. He set my feet up on a rock, and then here's that work. He established my goings, and he put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto God. And then it says this, And many shall see it and shall fear or respect or regard God and shall trust in the Lord. It's a living testimony. So part of our preparation is in the refining work in us, bearing fruit and good works unto God, which is going to affect the world out there. Your light so shining before the world is necessary. Jesus said, you don't turn on a light and put it under a bushel and hide it. It's not your light. It doesn't belong to you. It's a light that God gave. Its design is to shine. Yes, it gets you in trouble. Yes, people hate it. Yes, 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 yes. But Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Just let your light so shine. And count it all joy when you encounter oppositions. Did he say that? For all that live godly, Timothy said, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So do what you got to do. Say what you got to say. This is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2 and verse 12. That they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. They shall behold your good works. And you contrast that with how a lot of people in the world in my lifetime, as I've heard, talk about church folks, Christians. Yeah, you're all about them. You know, they do this and then they... Yeah, they run around on each other. They won't pay their bills and they're not good to their families and... And, you know, they fight and argue just like they're no different than anybody else. That's the world's view of a lot of what they call Christianity. 
people come into the church house and hear all the goody stuff and all the right stuff, and they go out in the world, and nothing happens. Nothing changes. Well, I ask the question as a preacher, I don't think they've ever been born again. I don't. Some of you might be surprised about that if you ask me. There's a lot of people I don't think have ever been born again. I think they're nice people. I just don't think this work that transforms a life has ever happened. Because you can't stay like you are and become a different person. You can't. Something has to start. A lot of young folks in the church here, a lot, maybe some of you, you were just born into the family. You had no say in the matter. We brought you in here and set you down. You had to be still. You learned how to do what we do. And you're growing up thinking you're what we are. And you've never been born again. That's why you don't have any consistency in your Christian life. Why there's no deep convictions about your sins and about your life and why you don't wrestle with things in your life. Why you allow yourself to be a little nasty every now and then. You've never been born again. But when you are, this is what happens. That work begins to take place. You know it's God. And as I said, you bear with it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10 says, Being fruitful in every good work. Being fruitful in every good work. This has to happen. We are here to bear fruit unto God. Turn to Titus chapter 2 and verse 7. Titus 2 and 7. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. And notice what good works include. Doctrine. Have you ever equated good doctrine with good works? It's doctrine that leads to what you believe. Your doctrine is going to establish you or you're going to be unestablished. Doctrine. What you believe. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity. These are things that people see. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of what? Good works. Doing good things, right things. Then in chapter 3 and verse 8. This is a faithful saying, And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. They will bring you a reward and favor with God. Good works. So be careful what you're doing, what you're about to do, of what identifies you as a human being with the people you work with, you work around, your family, your mother, your children. Somebody's got to see the change. The change is never more genuine than it is at home with your family. They've got to see it too. In the church, we'll see it here. The people where you work, they'll know it. They'll know if you're a Christian or not. There's this consistency of maintaining the right things, right attitudes, overcoming and doing good works. Holding fast to what you've been taught. This is good work. This is a good thing. And it bears fruit. What did Jesus say about his works? He said in John chapter 5 and verse 36, The same works that I do bear witness of me. The same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Can you say that? The things that you're doing bear witness that God has sent you and that He is with you. Amen. Are y'all here? Another verse about Jesus in John 10, verse 37, 38, where it says, Believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in Him. And if you cannot believe in me as a person, believe the works. What I'm doing. No man can do the things that I'm doing unless God be with him. And if God is with him and these things testify to a pure and holy life on the inside, believe the works. 
Know that God has done this. Be convicted by the fact that God in your presence has done things. Let that be it. And let that be your inspiration. Now, in preparation, as a part of your preparation for the coming of the Lord, as I said, this is a twofold work. This business of being ready and prepared. Two things. They may not relate specifically to each other, but there are two specific things that I believe you need to have. Number one, if you will turn to Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of Luke, and near the end of the chapter, verse 49. Luke 24 and verse 49. Part of your preparation for the coming of the Lord is to be a witness to the world, a charismatic witness. Let me tell you this, more and more the word charismatic has risen again to the level of being greatly abhorred by much of the modern church. Years ago in the 60s, in the late 60s for me, when God was pouring out His Spirit, God was bringing forth a new ministry. It wasn't new, but it was a revival of a teaching ministry, in the, especially in the United States. <clears throat> We had been in churches all of our life at the 20-minute sermon, 30-minute sermon our whole life, and that's all our life was. And here came teachers, men who just taught the Word. They just All they did was teach. And many of those who drew to that just sat out and began to take notes and began to realize by the teaching of the Word, the things that God was saying that we had never heard such things. I remember myself. I don't remember ever enjoying being taught anywhere, school, college, church, anywhere. But when I got saved, I wanted to know. And it was at that time in my life that teaching ministries were coming. The invention, believe it or not, of cassette tapes, which are now obsolete. I was there when it started. And the teachers came. And there was a variety of teachers, but the ones that affected me the most are the ones that were teaching on faith. That was just a message that came to me. I mean, it's just something that was real to me. And I remembered the questions. Can a man really do that? All things are possible. I mean, can that really be? I see that Jesus said it, but really? And the teachers were insistent. Yes, it is true. Some of you young folks wonder why your parents drug you in here so much and made you sit so still. This is how they were affected. The reality of entering into a life where God would come down and do things for you that had never been done before with anybody you knew. Supply all of your needs. Heal your body. Make you well. Give you the desires of your heart. He said He would. He said He would. And so we learned that. And somebody taught us that. And we thought... How can it be? I remember the first time you believed God for a car. Oh, I was just, ah, I don't know if I, can you really do this? Well, of course you can. What did he say? The desire of your heart. you have a desire for that? Boy, I do. I mean, I really could use a better one. I don't know if I got that new car faith, but I got maybe a little couple years newer faith, car faith. He gave me a new one. And it sparked all kinds of realities to me, unseen realities. Never seen some things happen before. I just knew it was real. I knew he would do it. That's why I'm here today. Because he did what he said he would do. And this thing about faith began to come to the surface. It was a way to make application of everything God was teaching us. It didn't happen because you heard it. It happened if you believe it. And for you to believe it, you have to apply the Word to whatever you're believing. You have to believe you have something you don't see or can't feel. That was unheard of. And people thought we were just a little bit shy of a cult. They did, and they still do. Because you were willing to step that far out of the boundaries of the old established religious orders. 
and began to take God at his word. And the people who preached the word were never quite that popular. You knew you would never be, but you knew that this was a way to relate to God like no other way. Without faith, you can't even please God. And boy, this became the thing that we gravitated to. Let me tell you what amplified it. It was a charismatic experience. Charismatic is a word which comes from the Greek word charis for grace, and the gifts of the Spirit are called charisma, the two words in the same family. God's gracious giving of gifts to his people. And they were all unique and sensational and power gifts and revelatory gifts and spoken gifts, things that we'd never seen or heard of, therefore we rejected them because we couldn't prove how can a man talk in tongues and make any sense. But it was the way we had to believe. Still do. Luke 24, listen to this. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. What did he say? He said to his disciples, where were they? They were cowering in an upper room, were they not? Jesus has been raised from the dead. They don't know what happened to his body, except there he appears in the upper room with them in this time. And he reveals himself to them, shows them the hands and the hole in his side. Undeniable proofs that Jesus is alive. He could eat fish on a seashore, yet he had a body that could pass through walls and disappear. You could put natural stuff in that body, but I don't know what it did. He could have clothes hanging on his body, but he could disappear and go through there and be here and be there. He could walk down a road to Emmaus with people that had seen him for three years. And they didn't know who he was. And all of a sudden their eyes were open and they saw him and he disappeared. He was in a heavenly body. You'll get one like that someday if you stand fast. And then here he was in the upper room. Now, anybody that could do all of that would get all of my attention, every bit of it. I mean, I am keyed in. Martha, you can have your supper. I'm going to listen to this. And so, he appears there, and the last words he speaks before he goes back up to heaven, before he leaves this world to go back up from where he came down. He came down once. He was crucified. He went up there, and he came back. When he came back, he said, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. As the king of the earth, there is now a human experience in the Godhead. And I am he. I am the visible representation of the invisible God. He's still God. I still represent him. One essence. That's a heady subject. But anyway, he said, you tarry here in this city until I send the promise of my Father upon you. Now, you don't need to go out and try to preach or start a new church. You don't need to go try to change the world and help anybody. You stay right here because you're going to need some special divine equipment in order to be able to do what you need to do. You don't know it the way you're going to know it. You put your finger right there just for a minute, and go to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 12. John 16 and verse 12, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot handle it, bear it, hold on to it right now. How be it, verse 13, how be it, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come. Now, he obviously had not come yet, had he? Petty. Because in John chapter 7, verse 38 and 39 said, He was not yet glorified. Holy Spirit doesn't come to dwell in anybody until Jesus is glorified. There was a visitation of the Spirit and His anointing all through the Old Testament. Samson had it. The builder of all the utensils in the temple had it. They were anointed. 
Bible said they were filled with the Spirit, which means they were anointed because the Spirit had not yet been given in John 7 because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus has gone to the Father. He's glorified. He comes back to the earth, announces that. He told his people in there in John 16, he said, when the Spirit of truth has come, what will he do? He will guide you into all the truth. Could they have been guided into all the truth without the Spirit? Are you all willing to admit that? That without the Holy Spirit, you cannot be guided into all the truth. You can find some of it. Actually, enough of it to have church. But you cannot get all of it. The deeper part of it only comes by revelation from the Holy Spirit to His people. Now, don't you all quit on me like the world is. Because what I told you is true. There was a function and a purpose of the Holy Spirit being sent to God's people. He said, when He comes, He will guide you into all the truth. You can't even know all the truth without the Spirit. Well, I don't believe in all that Holy Spirit stuff. You will never know all the truth. You cannot know it without the Spirit. Well, I got the Spirit when I got saved. No, not necessarily. Because in Acts chapter 8, there was a great revival in Samaria. They heard the word. Faith comes by hearing. They received the word. There was much joy, evidence, fruit in that city. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that they had received the word, they sent unto them Peter and John, who having come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen on none of them. They didn't go down there to lay hands on these people to get saved. You're not saved by the laying on of hands. You're saved by faith. Nobody has to lay hands on you to be saved. You're saved by believing a message. You're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible seed by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And once you've got that, that's where the new birth is. The second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, that's Jesus, is a life-giving spirit. You have life in Christ. It is Christ who will baptize you into the Holy Ghost, which He calls the promise, which we call the baptism, which we call the infilling, which we call being filled. The Holy Ghost. This is what comes. And a church is petrified to think they might do that. And those stoic prayers, God bless us this morning in this assembly. What if he did? What if he did? What if the Holy Ghost fell and they all started talking in tongues? What would happen to the whole system? Whoa, it'd blow up. Might be a wonderful thing to happen to them too. I still wonder, why did God pour out such a spirit on us in Charlestown, Indiana, a Christian church in the late 60s and 70s, early 70s? A little nobody-nothing church tucked away in a quaint little old dead nasty town in southern Indiana. A Christian church. A Christian church. And it's such a move of God as I've never seen since. And we all... All of us got filled with the Holy Ghost. All of us. The most exciting times ever I remembered in those years in my life. Going to church was a pleasure. It was a treasure. I mean, you look at the calendar, one more day we go to church. I mean, it was really like that. And you knew when you got to church, when it was over, you're going to go to somebody's house, you're going to talk and share and, and wait your turn and butt in on people to talk. It was life. And you got the Holy Ghost with so many new experiences. We kept sharing new things. It was just like all the time. Knocking on doors like we'd never knocked. Picking up anybody to try to lead them to Christ. Witnessing all the time to anybody about Jesus. Not to get them to talk in tongues or fill the Holy Ghost. But just to tell them about the Lord. We witnessed all the time. I remember on a street corner once in Indianapolis years ago for something, a convention, it was lunchtime. Out on the street, and there's a guy standing at a 
light post. And I was so inspired, I walked over to him and I said, hey, how you doing? Doing fine, how you doing? I said, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. All he could do is say, get out of here. I would. He said, what do you want to talk about? I said, have you ever known him? And started talking like that. And we wound up kneeling right there on that street corner beside that light. I still remember this. We were kneeling down to have him hands back praying for him to be saved. We did stuff like that a lot. Just so moved and inspired. I think this is the work of God. We were witnesses to something we had witnessed. And we wanted others to witness the same thing. And to have the same witness in them. Jesus said, and Luke, tarry in the city until I send the promise of my Father upon you. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1. This is a continuation of the same author on the same subject. Luke wrote Acts. So here's what he said in Acts chapter 1. Verse 8. But you shall receive power. Dynamite. Woo! Dunamis, dunamis, inherent power. One translator said, power here, dunamis, means the ability to overcome resistance. No weapon formed against you, no obstacle, no hindrance, no impediment, no anything in your way has the ability to withstand the power of God as you exercise it in your life. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That's the promise of the Father. And you shall be witnesses. Well, let me ask you a question. When the Holy Ghost comes upon you, what will you become? A witness. Are you with me? You become a witness. It means that you will attest to what you have seen or heard or know. That's what you do in a court of law, isn't it? A witness. On the witness stand, what does a witness do? A witness under oath, whatever that means, tells what they have seen or what they have heard. They bear witness. They can't tell what they haven't seen. They can't tell what they haven't heard. He wouldn't get on the witness stand and said, tell me now, what did your brother or your sister see or hear? It's not their testimony. It's my testimony. It's just like us. We can't bear witness to somebody we don't know. You can't talk about Jesus if he's a stranger. You can't bear a witness to somebody you're embarrassed about when you're put on trial in front of other people. When people make fun of you or ridicule you about this or, or that. Your witness is your light. That's your light. It's your verbal expression of what has happened to you on the inside that people don't understand. And when you can tell them, I know that it's real, because not only did he save me, but he's healed me and he delivered me. I'm out of debt. He's blessed me. He's blessed my family, blessed my home. He's blessed the church, blessed the ministry to some degree anyway. I can only tell you that I haven't had a doctor's bill in, in nearly 40 years. What am I supposed to say? I mean, is that a witness? I'm not trying to brag on it because I cannot boast of what the Lord has done. There is no boast. But I can testify to you and to wherever I am of what I have experienced, what I have seen, and what I have heard. That's all I can do. And when I'm sent into the world, I'm not sent into a lost world as an expert. I'm not sent into the world to quote the Bible. I'm here to tell you what I know and what I've seen and what I've experienced. I may not know all about that other stuff, brother or sister, but this I know. I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that even though I haven't experienced a lot of the things he said, I am persuaded that he is able, and if I need it, he will. Ha, 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 you ever see this happen? Ever? No, I haven't yet, no. 
but I will not deny the Lord that bought me by saying I'll base my beliefs on my experience because I will base my faith on what he says, not what I've seen. And if God says it's so, it's so. And so this charismatic experience begins to take root because the Holy Spirit comes to begin to amplify what God has said in a way that he takes it deeper. It's amazing that when people get filled with the Spirit, they almost immediately believe in healing. And the people without the Holy Spirit can't believe it. No matter how hard you want them to, they can't. Oh, I preached to my parents, you say, or my oh, I've sent them tracts in literature. Folks, it's the Holy Ghost first. You've got to get them filled with the Holy Ghost. That is so vital in Acts 8 again. When they heard they'd received the Word of God, that's your salvation. They sent Peter and John to pray for them so that they might receive the Holy Ghost. In Acts 19, Paul and Silas, having passed through the upper coast, found certain disciples. You know what the first subject of discussion was? Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, we haven't even heard of any Holy Ghost. He said, well, then what were you baptized unto? Unto John's baptism. You know, there's a coming of the Lord in preparation for His coming. Cleanse yourself. That's what baptism symbolizes. It's a preparation for the coming of the Lord. It's a John's baptism. Acknowledging that the Lord is coming. And said, we haven't even heard of it. So Paul explained that to them, laid hands on them. They spoke of all things. They spoke, they spoke in tongues. And today people view people as some kind of a throw back to the 100 years ago in this country. 100 years ago in this country was a tremendous move of God. It started a little earlier than right now, but it was the Azusa Street 10 years earlier. And boy, whoo, almost 10 years earlier. Pentecostal, they call them. They were harassed, persecuted, written about as second-rate citizens because they believed in healing. They raised their hands, they shouted, and they ran, and they danced. They laid hands on people. They even prophesied. Woo! And they were viewed as village idiots. Yet these were God's people. He singled these people out, distinct from all the rest of a dead world, and said, these are mine. They will shine forth as lights in a dark world. So back to where we were. So part of your preparation for the coming of the Lord. Necessary and vital is to be filled with the Spirit, to receive the Holy Ghost. Jesus said these words, When He comes, He will show you things to come. Howbeit, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will take the things of mine, He will show them to you, He'll disclose to you, He'll show you things that are coming. Isn't that part of your preparation? Will it not be nice to know today what's about to happen in a week? To get ready for it? To not be caught unawares? To not be drifting around in this world with no preparation for anything? Living in a darkness? Listening to spiritual darkness? Listening to entertainment and fun and games and miss God? Miss it. You weren't ready. But Lord, we had a big meeting. We had a big church. We prophesied in your name. Blah, 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 blah. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Wheat and tares do grow together. They do act the same way. The tares want to be rewarded and the wheat just wants to go to heaven and live gratefully with God. And Jesus said, I never knew you. What a tragedy. What an absolute tragedy in this world. But when Jesus said, you shall receive power, that's what he said. Have you? If I said to many of you here, have you been baptized in the Holy Ghost? A lot of you, yeah, I have. And yet, it didn't do any different. Nothing changed. Maybe it's Acts 5. Maybe it's Acts 5.38. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe that is the problem with this Holy Ghost thing and meetings like ours. Acts 5, verse 38. 
Somebody find the single one word I'm looking for. For he gives the Holy Ghost to whom? 532. 532. Who gets the Holy Ghost? Who will receive the Holy Spirit? Does your Bible say the word obey? I ain't going to say any more. He will give the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him, not who acknowledge Him, not who read about Him and listen to so on and so on and so on and so forth, but to those who obey Him. The difference between being a church member and being a member of Christ, of His body, is the word obey. It's used nowhere more frequently than it is in the book of Jeremiah. Over and over and over. He uses that word, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and it shall be well with you and your young ones and your children. All obey my voice. I will be your God. He said it's those who obey his voice that will receive the Holy Ghost. What should I stand in a pulpit and say then today? That everybody in a charismatic church, no matter how they live, no matter what choices they're making or whatever they do, if they're filled with the Spirit and talking tongues, they got it. I can't say that. I'm going to stay with the Word. The Spirit of God is not a stagnant thing. The Holy Ghost doesn't come in to find Him a nice chair to sit in while you decide whether or not you want to live this way or not. It's the Spirit of God who in Second Corinthians... 3 and verse 18, it says, As we behold in a mirror, we are changed into the same image even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So not only does He bring revelation to us, not only is the Holy Spirit a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, but the Holy Ghost is the great changer. The same Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness where the devil was, led Him out there to be tempted He'll do the same thing to you to prove you too. It's a refining process, an improving process, a polishing and cleansing and scum-removing process so that the world looks at you and they know that you've been with the Lord. It's got to be like this, folks, but it takes the baptism in the Holy Spirit. You cannot be the kind of witness God wants you to be without the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, you can take that any way you want to, here, yonder, wherever. But that's the truth. That's one part of the twofold. The second part of the twofold aspect of his preparation, not only is being filled with the Holy Spirit, but it goes to 2 Timothy 2, and we'll close with this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 19 through 21. This also must happen. Verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone that names the name of Christ, if you do this, then you do this. If you name His name, do this. Depart from iniquity. But in a great house, they're not only vessels of gold and silver, what if that is said in the Lord's church? They're not only the good, but also the bad. Let me read the way he says it here because that's what he goes on to say. It's, it's personal. In a great house, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and earth, and some to honor, some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these. Now see the word if? It's up to you. This is the revelation that God brings on how to do this. But God will not do it for you. If a man will purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel. But what kind of vessel will he be? Four things. One, he will be a vessel unto honor. Honor is a Greek word which has to do with value. Hebrews 13, account those worthy of double honor who labor in the word and doctrine. It's put a certain kind of a value on it. it. Speaks of also, you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Your body doesn't even belong to you. If you read carefully 1 Corinthians 6 and a verse in chapter 7, you've been purchased. 
been bought from the world by the Lord, purchased. You're his. And he said, you are to glorify the Lord with your body because you were bought with a price. The word price is our word for honor. The Greek word honor and the Greek word price in 1 Corinthians 6.20 are the same thing. You were bought with a price. Would that mean that the price that God used to purchase you was a valuable thing? Yes. It cost him everything. Well, honor is a word like that in varying degrees. He said, if you will purge yourself, if you will cleanse yourself, you will be a vessel of honor. And second thing he says, you will be a vessel sanctified. Sanctified is our message of separation. It means to be set apart unto. You will become in this life, in that body you're in, as the process continues on from glory to glory to glory to glory, little bit by little bit, you will become unto God something of honor. God will put a value on you. Goodness and mercy will follow you around. God will protect you and keep you. His promises specifically for you. You are meaningful to him and he loves you and he cares for you. Concerning you, he will give his angels charge and they shall keep you in all of your ways. He does that for you because you're a vessel of importance and you have value to God. You'll be sanctified. You'll be set apart. This message demands it. Come out from among them and be separate. And a third thing he says, you'll be meat for the master's use. Well, the New King James says, useful to the master or for the master. Let me ask you a question because this was going to be the whole point of the whole message. Useful. Why is it that multitudes of good people, church folks, nice people, are not really that useful to the Lord? Is it because we're not committed? Probably. Is it because we're afraid of the consequences of going all the way? Probably. Is it because of the weakness of mind that we say, I don't think I can do that, I'm not ready for that? Probably. All of these things, probably so. Is it the fear of being ridiculed or rejected by your friends that you don't want to get that far into this thing and go all the way? Probably. Probably. Does the preacher hold back for fear he might lose his job in the pulpit and have a bad name in the system? Trust me, probably. Probably. Maybe not all of these, maybe one of them, maybe all of them. Because you can't read far in here without realizing there is a cost. It's going to cost you something. And there's a price you have to pay. Like the song said, there's a race to be run. There's a victory to be won, and every hour by thy power will go through. But it's a decision you've got to make. It's a determination that you have to have. It's a commitment you have to be willing to make. It's just the way it is. And for those who are willing to make that decision, go through the thing with the Holy Spirit and all of that, they become the kind of person that God can use. He can take that fearless one of you out there and put you in a ghetto somewhere to witness knowing that you won't give it up because you're afraid. He can send you as a missionary to a foreign field. And he knows that you'll exercise your best down there because you're committed to the Lord to do that. And you won't quit. You're not afraid. You're not doing it for show. You're doing it for love. And he knows that he can anoint you to say certain things from the pulpit because you won't draw back if you're going to preach someday. He knows you won't give up and draw back. Oh, they might fire. He knows you won't do that because your commitment is not to the favor of people. It's to the favor of God. There's just this high-level commitment that we make where this whole sermon started to let the influence of God rule me. To be able to say, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of man. I'm not afraid of the world. I have died to myself. Paul was in a dungeon, in a prison, writing the Bible, in jail. Driven. Joyfully. He said, I just want to know him. While he's in jail, he ain't going to quit. 
He's not going to back off. He's not going to give up. She's not afraid. He's not afraid. Why? Because they are useful to the Lord. God can use that soul. They're not intimidated by the threats of this world. They've already surrendered their will to God. They're not afraid. And they're willing to go through with whatever they have to go through. And the last word that he says is what the message is about, these twofold preparation. Number four in Second Timothy 2 verse 21 is prepared. Honor, separation, committed to usefulness, prepared. Now that, for the last three weeks and four hours, I guess, that's why we're here. Amen. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to give you thanks this morning on the behalf of all these people for blessing this assembly as you have. Even though on occasion as we look back over this year, we have struggled. There have been some major disappointments. Some breakdowns of our beliefs. But we are still here. Our faith is still intact. That we could announce to the powers of darkness, there is nothing you have broken that our God cannot fix. There is nothing that has gone so far away that it cannot be retrieved by our Lord. Lord. 